So whenever anybody asks me, well, what are you looking for in a CSR? Or how do I know if this service manager is right for me? I ask them, how do you want that role to behave? Number one. And then will that person have those behaviors? You're listening to Toolbox of the Trades, brought to you by Service Titan, a podcast for top service professionals where we interview leaders for their best tips and tricks of the trades. Learn how industry trailblazers stay ahead of the competition and how you too can be at the forefront of an industry. Let's jump in. Kathy Nielsen, welcome to the Toolbox for the Trades. Hello, hello. I am so excited to have you on. We've known each other for a couple years now. You are a big friend to the Service Titan family, and you just have an amazing backstory that I can't wait to dig into. Um, Thanks for having me. No problem. So to get started, uh, I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everyone. How did you get into the trades? Well, I was in manufacturing before the trades, and when manufacturing started kind of leaving this country and I had to look for something else, I chose the trades because I can affect change where retail, I can't affect change. And that's one of the things I loved about manufacturing. I could literally go on the floor and change something being made. So that's why I picked the trades. That's amazing. Can you actually dig a little bit deeper into what it means to affect change for you? Why is that kind of a nice North star for your career? Well, in retail, for example, if somebody complains about the product or is unhappy with the, you know, whatever widget you're selling, then there's nothing you can do about it. You can give them credit or follow store policy, but, but at the end of the day, you don't have anything to do with the product other than you display it. And in manufacturing and in services, you can affect that change. If somebody calls me upset, I can fix what happened. I can fix either the work we did inaccurately, the work someone else did inaccurately. And, you know, I can, I have ways to help them through that. And at the end, the plan is to have them feel better and retail and things like that. You, you can't, or where I grew up insurance, it's insurance capital of this country. So if I go work for an insurance firm, again, it's just a product that I have no say in, in how that customers, you know, uses a product or whether it's really right for them. So that's really interesting because in your specialty, you're kind of the front of the, you're the front office, essentially, you really specialize in the CSR and the dispatching side that we'll get into in a moment. And you really do have that ability to change what the company is doing for them, because it's a service that you're providing. So you can really, there's a lot of levers at your disposal that you can pull and you can really impact someone's life. Exactly. Yeah. And I, so I, when I left manufacturing, that's what I was looking for is someplace that when I'm helping a customer that I can affect change for them in the product that we provide or the service that we provide. I love that. So you started in the trades to affect change. Talk to me about the journey that you went through that got you, that you started at and where are you at today? Just give me that timeline. Sure. So I was, as I said, in manufacturing at the time, I was manager of a customer service division. We were the ones that imported the product and did all the ad specialty stuff, trinkets and trash. And so when that economy started going down, that's when I knew I needed to look for something else. People weren't spending money on that. And I was very active in an organization called Pheasants Forever. 
and I used to be in charge of a youth hunt. So I went to my board and I said, okay, you know, here I'm looking, if, does anybody know of anything? Cause life's about connections. And I had one of them say, Hey, we have a heating cooling company. We'd really like you to come interview. And so I went and interviewed with them as a CSR dispatcher, office manager, kind of a hybrid. They were very small. And after a few years, a large company asked me to come be their general manager. And um, that's when I grew it from, they were about probably a million and a half maybe. And I grew it to just under six, like five and a half. And the owner wanted to sell. So he really wasn't involved. He wasn't there a lot. And so I had to go from one part-time office CSR to three CSRs, a dispatcher and a bookkeeper. Like in two weeks, I had to hire everybody and just grow this company. And so luckily, I'm one of those people that looks for mentors. And so I found a business coach that was a really amazing mentor and, you know, learned how to interview correctly and how to hire what I'm looking for. I just learned those tools to do the right, the right steps on that journey. Got it. So you got hired from that first HVAC company that you were at and you got into the second one and they essentially said, we want to grow this company. And you had two weeks to hire all of these positions. And at the time you really only had experience being a CSR slash office manager. Correct. What was some of the most sticky moments in that transition? Like, what do you remember? You said you were really helpful. You were really lucky to have a mentor, which is phenomenal. And we've heard that before on this podcast, how important it is to have a mentor to network with people in the trades. I also love that you said life is about connections. Fantastic. It It really (laughs) is. is. But like, talk to me, like, how did you hype yourself up during that transition during that um, giant career change? Well, for me, I love, I'm a doer. Like I dig paperwork and (laughs) I I know people are like, that is, that that is insane. And, um, you know, like a lot of things I help people with now is digital paperwork. And I just dig that. And even after I left the manufacturing side, uh, my best friend would call me and go, Hey, I have wine. And I walk in her office, she would literally scoop up her entire desk and hand it to me just to organize. So I kind of went at it with that idea, like, okay, let's be organized. What are those, you know, pieces to bite off before we eat the whole cake? And so I really just did it in a very organized fashion. I think that helped more than anything. And then having that mentor that said, okay, here's how you hire, here's how you interview, here's you know, and, and made me role play and practice and figure out, you know, what kind of culture we wanted. So, um, but that's really how I went at it. I went at it in a very systemized fashion. Got it. Good advice. Opposed to what I would probably do, which is cry in a closet for 30 minutes (laughs) and then just suck it up and go do it. Um, So talk to me about some of those lessons you learned. You mentioned already, like learning how to hire, looking to find what you want. What was it that this mentor taught you that allowed you to make those decisions quickly and reach that pretty significant growth milestone? Well, I'm a huge fan of assessments. There's one I've used for probably 15 years called the Intermetrics. And and I now actually rep the product just because I'm a fan. But they certified me in those assessments on how to use them and And we, at that time, it was their services on how to figure out, identify, how do you want that role to behave? And then we looked for people with those behaviors, not look for people we liked or the skill. 
And so I think that's one of the biggest mistakes I would have made had I not had that is I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have determined what behaviors I want in a role first. Got it. So whenever anybody asks me, well, what, what are you looking for in a CSR? Or how do I know if this service manager is right for me? I ask them, how do you want that role to behave? Number one. And then will that person have those behaviors? And so that was probably my biggest thing. And then, cause I had to take 160 applications for CSRs. I did 12 or 20 phone interviews, 12 in-person interviews hired for half of them are still there seven years later. That's incredible. Can you name the assessment again? The one I use and I'm a big fan of is called Inner Metrics, I-N-N-E-R-M-E-T-R-I-X. That's really fascinating. Yeah. My business coaches happen to be the North American distributor for that assessment. And that's why I rep the product now, but they've used it for probably 30 years and I use it different companies I go to, or we're trying to figure out somebody that's failing at their role. You know, we look at them. So why are they wired the way they are? And is that what's causing them to fail? So. Got it. So we're, 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 we're already jumping all over the place, which is I know. A good conversation. <laughs> we always do. <laughs> we always do. But just to kind of give the folks at home who may not know who you are, although again, you're very familiar, people in the service Titan world know you, you are at this point are now a business consultant for Operations Excellence LLC. So why don't you tell the folks, um, well, actually, before you even get there, talk to me about how you made the transition from working at that company that you scaled to 6 million to becoming this business consultant operations expert for the trades. So I scaled the company, the owner wanted to sell, I attempted to buy and we didn't agree on the price. He wanted a lot more for blue sky and the age I was at and where I was at in life, I wasn't willing to pay for blue sky that much. And so he ended up selling to two of my technicians and, um, one of them and I, the main one and I worked really well together, but the other one, it was really just not a great situation. And he ended up, um, they eliminated my position a year and a half later. So I put the word out again. I had a company approach me from Texas. I lived in a camper behind the plumbing shop for nine months. Why I decided if that was the company to move my family for and decided that that wasn't the one I wanted to move for. I, in the meantime, I was in a camper nights and weekends. I only went home about once a month for a weekend. And so people would ask me to help them do what I did for Shawl. And so I just started doing that. And at Shawl, we had done five software transitions in six years. So (laughs) yeah, I got to be really good at software. And then it just kind of grew from there. I said, okay, I hooked up my camper to the truck and I drove home and I started this business and I, I really started it to have a job and I ended up with a company. That's really what happened. I started it to have a job and I ended up with a company. Yeah. That's quite, that's the (laughs) most unique way. I think I've talked to people on this podcast who have fallen into entrepreneurship. So go you also (laughs) sleeping in a camper behind an HVAC company for nine months lady. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite dedication. And I really commend you for wanting to be super serious about whether or not you were going to move your family to Texas. Hey, the upside of hanging out with plumbers, they trenched in internet, water, sewer, electricity. Like I had it all. (laughs) 
Fantastic. That's amazing. All right. So you at Shaw, you mentioned you did five software transitions in six years or six. Yeah. yeah. Five and six years. Folks that are in the industry know that the operating system you have for your business is really integral. Uh, Obviously that's what service Titan provides. So you kind of knew And I imagine your analytical mind really helped with this because when you take a company onto a software, there's so many elements that have to map from what you did on paper to what you did, what you're now going to do in the software. And then as you change from software to software, you're constantly mapping those other things. So I imagine the way you work, your your organizational analytical mind just worked beautifully on that. It did. And I think too, like, one of the gals, when I told her we were switching the last time when I was there, she just started crying. She's like, I'm retiring. I can't do another one. And, and I get that. I said, but, but you have me and I'm going to manage it. And so I think, I think a lot of it is having, you have to have somebody that's a critical thinker to do those things. And I decided a long time ago, we weren't going to make software behave how we wanted it to behave. We're going to really immerse ourselves into using the software as it's intended. And that makes all the difference in deciding to switch software. I I see it all the time. People are trying to get it to behave in their old software. Then what was the point of changing to begin with? That's a really good point. And I would also commend you as it sounds like with every software change you made, you were the person who managed it. So also having that person that steers the software ship as you're implementing it step-by-step. Yes, because it wasn't my choice. I was doing what the owner wanted to do. I certainly would have never taken on that kind of change that often, but um, circumstances and decisions were made. And so I had to manage that. And And I think you just really need that person to steer the ship, but someone who, again, how do you want that position to behave? They need to be a critical thinker. They, and not everybody is, you know, we critical think because of our positions, we are forced into it sometimes, but you, you've got to have that person be a critical thinker. I agree. So, uh, you've now, you started consulting for a job and then you found yourself with a company (laughs) You specialize in software implementation and maximizing software, which is why you're very well known in the service Titan community because you've worked with a lot of our customers. They've been your clients to help optimize a service Titan. What are some other things that you do in your consulting work? I do a lot of customer service training. I do a customer boot camp. I kind of, I really try to gear things toward what their needs. So like a lot of companies will have me come in for a day and do like half their CSRs in the morning and half in the afternoon. I have a two day boot camp. I do, I have in July slated a CSR Academy where they're going to come to an Airbnb that we're going to stay in for three days and immerse ourselves. We have phones set up, we'll have testing, we'll have like the whole, the whole deal, computer set up, headsets, everything. So the thing that people have realized now is your CSRs, it used to be a warm body and now they are, the revenue is directly related to them. They are frontline, they're not back office. And so um, people are starting to realize the impact of good training. And then I do a lot of, with the assessments called what's your genius. So mm-hmm. I have several clients that'll have me come in and, and everybody in the company takes it. And then we talk about what that is for them, you know, how they're wired, what they see, what kind of data they're getting in their decision-making, how they make decisions, um, how they communicate those kind of things. It's, 
there's a book that goes with it called what's your genius. That's why we call it that, but it's, um, it's very cool to see those just aha things happen when they realize how they communicate and what they do and, um, really makes a difference in your culture. It a hundred percent does at service Titan. We're really big on the disc assessment. Personally, I'm big on Myers-Briggs. Are there any other assessments that you really enjoy? Well, a lot of them out there are personality tests. Mm-hmm. So, and disc is disc is how you react to what's going on in the moment around you. So, like if I put a beach ball on top of the ocean, it's affected by wind and waves and everything. That's disc. So, mm-hmm. the intermetrics has disc, but it also has the seven motivators, which is like about five feet underwater. And then it also has your attributes. That's your moral compass, and it's the anchor at the bottom. Those things don't change except with life events, marriage, divorce, birth, death, that kind of thing. And so it really will tell you the gut of a person, you know, are they going to come to work every day? If they're a manager, how do they communicate with their people? If they're CSR, how do they communicate with customers? You know, that kind of data. So I like really raw objective data. Personality is great, but, but I would rather know the raw data. Dang, I want to take this. I want to take this assessment. I'll I'll send you a complimentary (laughs) link. (laughs) You're the best. Um, Well, I was about to say while you were explaining that, I was like, wow, it's almost like businesses aren't run by robots. They're run by people (laughs) with emotions and feelings and all of these things like talk to. So how many clients, I mean, you don't have to actually put a number, but you've assumed done dozens of clients at this point with all your different training offerings. Could you talk to me real quick about like, what are some of the big themes that you often run into and that you have to coach clients, whether they be owners or CSRs or service managers through? Well, I think owner wise in this industry, we have a lot of families, husband wise um, kind of situation. So I like the assessment in that case, I like to use because there's a whole command. There's one page. It just says how they like to communicate and how they don't. And like at Shaw, we laminated that and put it on everybody's office door or cubicle. Oh, and wow. So I teach them how to give each other permission to say, okay, time out. You're talking to me in a way I don't like. And you know that because it says it right here in writing. So, or if we oftentimes will interview somebody and we think their behavior means they're like, ooh, they're going to be really aggressive and get stuff done. But then we find out when they come on board, it really is passive aggressiveness And it's not a good thing. So if you have information about the person, you can ask better questions. You know, tell me about a time you had to do a project with another person and how you decided who kind of took the lead. You know, those kind of questions instead of, you know, how long did you work here? What'd you like about your job? What'd you dislike? Because people study for interviews. So (laughs) they're not going to answer in a way they don't think you want to hear unless they don't, they are taken off guard. So you interview very quickly. You ask questions quickly. You don't give them time to think um, because you want the raw data. That's really smart. Well, think about it. Anytime you went for an interview, you practiced, you went online and looked at interview questions. When you create a resume, you Google it on what that should look like. I like, for example, I just did this with my daughter and her best friend last night. And I was talking, I said, okay, his job ethic is very low. He does not see the reason he needs to go to work. 
I would go to his resume and look if he's a job hopper and they both start laughing and go, oh yeah, he has jobs for like day, three days, a month. <laughs> Dang. Very interesting. I, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated in this. Um, <laughs> I geek out about it. <laughs> No, I'm geeking out right there with you. So, so let's talk about customer or CSRs, right? Because one of the things that you do is you talk about creating customer service superheroes. And we already alluded a bit to, you know, your CSRs are on the front line of your organization. Can you talk to me a little bit about how we realized as an industry that they're not just a warm body and how we now know that they're really important to the success of a business? Well, I think people started realizing it when they could get data. So once you could start looking at the numbers and you can say, oh, this, when this girl books, her, her calls get booked, the tech has great success, you know, because she's doing it or he is doing it right to begin with. Where um, before all of that, it was mostly on paper. We really didn't have data to see the end result, you know, it's just a feeling. And oftentimes in this industry, the companies are owned by former techs and it's a mental shift to go from tech to manager to owner. And if they didn't value what the CSRs did as a tech, they thought, oh, well, I'm doing all the work. I'm making all the money. Then they didn't value them when they were employees of theirs. And So they had to make that mental shift. So I think having data to prove their value helped a lot when that started happening, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, when we could really see those numbers. I think the other thing we do is we tend to, and this is an opinion, but I don't believe jobs descriptions are tasks. So a job description is how does this role behave? who do they report to? What is the salary range? You know, those things. But then the tasks that they do, there might be 20 tasks that a CSR could do, but then I'm doling them out according to their skills and abilities. So I had a rock star CSR, but if she did one single thing and got interrupted, she wouldn't make mistakes. So I put her first on the phone and she had very little else to do other than she just answered the phone and book calls. But then another CSR could also file warranties because during those slower times, she wasn't first on the phone, she could handle that interruption. So I think you ha- that's my opinion. You decide on job descriptions, but then you decide on tasks for a department and dole them out according to skill and ability. Interesting. And again, it, it's an opinion, but I think a lot of people think a job description includes tasks and they have to be able to do this, but it's okay if they, if all they do is answer the phone and they're amazing at booking calls. That's really, I think that actually also speaks to as human beings, how it's actually fairly difficult to multitask. A lot of people, I think, and this is a, you shared an opinion. This is my opinion. I think people <laughs> like to boast that they're good multitaskers. I'm yeah. that myself. And when you actually look at it before our call today, I was in a meeting where I was going through my email while I was in the meeting. Cause you know, we're still working from home and someone said something and I'm like, wait, what? And so it just goes to show that when your attention is split, you're not doing good work. And it's a lesson I yes. learned probably every day. <laughs> Who knows how many times I have to listen. I have to learn it before yeah. I get it in my head. But I think that's a great example. Like if your CSR is phenomenal at booking calls, 
let that be the one thing they have to do. Yeah. Well, like I can have, and I learned it again through assessments. So when someone would come in my office, I can have a conversation with you and type a email of a totally different conversation. And my brain does that. That is true multitasking. I'm just wired that way. But like I would go into my boss's office and he'd be on the phone texting and I knew he was, he can't do that. He can't listen and do that. And so what I realized was when my CSRs would come into my office to ask me a question and I didn't stop typing to look at them, they felt I wasn't listening. Mm. I was, I, I was absorbing it, but that they didn't take it that way. So when I started trying to go, okay, their communication tool is they want you to break the ice and have a little conversation. I didn't care. Like that's, we do different things at night. I lived in a different town. It wasn't, and I don't mean that in a snotty way. We just had different circles, right? But I started doing that. I it, Their assessment told me to do that. So I sat down my stuff. I'd go out to their area and I'd say, oh, what'd you do last night? Where'd you go eat? And then I'd come in and work. And the beauty is my assessment said, don't waste my time, get right to the point. And they started doing that for me. So I think once I realized others can't multitask like that, and they didn't believe I was paying attention, and I started behaving in a way they liked me to behave, they had a much better experience as an employee. I really commend you for being able to, for sticking those on the door, because I feel like a lot of organizations boast about what types of assessments they do, and then all the information just kind of gets thrown out the window. It's like we all compare our results one day, then it's like, and forget those, and we just like go to work as is. But I think that's really, I think that's a really smart way to do business, and I think it's a really smart thing that you adopted early on, so kudos to you. Thanks. Yeah. Like I said, I geek out on it, but I would let all my employees take it, their spouses, kids, my kids, my youngest took it since she was eight to help guide them on, you know, career choices. And so I, I just think it's really, a really, really good tool. And one of my clients, we were down there um, hanging out with them one night we were playing Uno and having a glass of wine. And she's like, Kathy, those damn assessments. I said, what? And she goes, you know, that CSR, you said, don't hire her. And I said, yeah, because I always say, I'll say, here's a no. And here's why. And she goes, you know, we hired her anyway. Yeah. She goes, I fired her this morning. They're always right. (laughs) Okay. So we've already, we danced about it a bit. I want to talk about (laughs) what behaviors we're looking to hire in a CSR, because you already said that before. And that blew my mind. Like what kind of behavior do I want this job to be? Do I want this job to exude? And I think that, um, as first time managers, first time owners, you know, the tech to manager to owner path, which is very familiar in this industry, we always go for who do I want to spend the night with? Or who do I who do I want to have to call if it's a late night or something? Or I don't know why I keep going to late night metaphors, but we always look to hire people that we <laughs> yeah. like. So yes. talk to me about putting your mindset into the behavior of what the job should do. And specifically, what kind of behaviors you think a CSR role should have, should do? Well, at the end of the day, you have to remember, it doesn't matter if you like them or not, right? I want them to be really good at their job. It's like I had surgery one time. The surgeon said, well, I've been told I don't have very good bedside manners. Is that a problem? I'm like, are you really good at 
being a surgeon? He said, yeah. I said, then you're my guy. I don't care if I like you. I want you to be really good at that, right? <laughs> so I think, I think first we have to decide that. Yes, we want to like them. We don't want to be around someone we don't like all the time. But it's more important for them to be really great at their job. And I can, I can respect anybody until they lose my respect. I don't have to like them. So if we're respectful, because very rarely am I going to hang out and be buds with my employees as a GM. And not that I don't, I don't want to be rude and snotty, but it's, it's hard to be buddies with somebody you're trying to manage. And so I want to be friendly. I want to be inclusive and all of that, but I'm not going to go hang out and have a beer after work with them. Maybe once a year. It's just I'm not going to do that because then it then it gets too personal. So I behaviors in a CSR for me are they have to be really great on the phone. So many people interview CSRs and never have them get on a phone. I put them in the conference room on the phone and pretend that I'm calling them and they answer like they pretend they work for me. I don't care if they know anything, but I want to hear what if they have a really cruddy phone voice. Or yeah. what if they start going, oh, do you have any dogs? I have a dog. His name's Fido. He's like 12. They, customers don't care. So I need somebody that's going to do a really great job. So my behavior is friendly. I want them to want to help people. Generally speaking, I don't have them highly motivated by money because a CSR, although they can make money and we have spiffs and opportunities, it's not like a commissioned sales role. I want them to want to follow the rules. If leadership and learning isn't at the top of their motivators, I'm okay with that because their top ones are helping people and following rules. If they're going to do a dispatch role, I don't want them to want to do it their way because I find dispatch for profit. We don't get along well when they want to do their own way all the time. So mm. I learned that was a problem for me. That's so I learned that behavior didn't work in our company. Not to say it doesn't work in others, but I learned what behaviors worked in ours. That one didn't work in ours for dispatch for profit. And then I wanted them to be very people oriented, but not overshare. Hmm. Because I don't want them on the phone for 20 minutes trying to book a call. So if if they were that overshare, then they might go a little lower in the pile to consider hiring. Just again, because I knew they'd sit out there and talk the whole time instead of getting stuff done. Because <laughs> CSRs will tend to be less of a problem attacker than an owner or a salesman. And that's common. And that's why owners get frustrated with them because they they're just wired different. Interesting. Cause like an owner, a salesperson, as you said, an attacker may be looking for different opportunities. For example, if the HVAC unit's like 15 years old, they immediately, their eyes light up like, oh, this is potentially a replacement opportunity. Whereas a CSR, if their behavior is be helpful, follow rules and be friendly, they just want to make sure they get someone out there as soon as possible to assist the client. Interesting. So that's why you give them tools to learn dispatch for profit. Cause if they're rural followers, then I can teach them that. Got it. Ah, I'm just marinating on that. <laughs> that's really, <laughs> really most, smart. 
most owners, you're familiar with the disc, most owners are very high Ds. They yeah. want to just check stuff off the lift, get it done. Most CSRs are very low Ds. Wow. Well, it's good to know that I probably wouldn't make a good CSR. I am a, I am, I am all D. I'm, <laughs> I am a very strong D in the disc assessment, which is all about um, getting things done, checking boxes off, super focused. So good to know. But uh, you might, you might, for example, if you're very high D, come across as angry. You're really angry at problems, not people. But the people that aren't high D will think you're angry at them. That explains most of my problems in my life, Kathy. I think I have to go end this interview and have a moment to meditate on those. Um, let's talk about, okay, so that's, I mean, you just gave some really fantastic information. Is that when we're talking about the differences between owners and CSRs, like what are the, this is a question I, I, I sent you before. So like, what are some common opportunities owners should seize to love, level up their CSR team? Like how do you get owners to see potential and to really see opportunity in their CSR organization? Well, I think I, I like to say a couple of things. One, every position should have like three non-negotiables, right? So for a CSR, it's error rate. So I had a company call me and say, Oh, I've got a CSR. She's making a lot of mistakes. What's acceptable? 98% of the time she's right. That sounds really good. 98% of the time. I said, okay, what kind of mistakes? And she said, address phone numbers. That's critical data. Mm. I said, okay, how many calls does she take a day? And she said, oh, 60 to 80. I said, okay, let's do 60 times five days a week times 52 days a year. That's however many thousand calls times 2%, that's 315 calls a year she has critical errors on. Now you multiply that by all your CSRs, you have like a thousand calls wrong a year. Is that acceptable? That's not acceptable. Critical Ooh. data is a non-negotiable. Dang. You are very, you're like this mishmash of someone who's really into like, a, like, like objective data, but then also like into the psychology of it. And I'm digging it, Kathy. <laughs> well, so Matt, you put this. math to anything, it makes it objective. <sighs> Love it. So I can really like this person and that's hard to be objective. But if I put math to it and go, she's making 315 critical errors a year, that's not acceptable. No. It doesn't matter if I like her. Dang. So talk to me about the benchmarks that you look at for CSRs. So you said error rate is one. What about booking rate? Like when you come on to to improve a CSR team, what are some of the hard data that you look at to see what can be improved or what needs to be improved? Well, first I look at their booking rate if they're on Service Titan, for example, on the dashboard. If it's 100%, I know that's a lie. Nobody's 100%. And they get really defensive when you start saying that's not real data but we're not, no one's that good. So I say, well, I'm looking, I want 85, but I think 75 is really great because 75 is probably real data. Mm. Then I can improve them. But if they're telling me they're hundred percent, then number one, they're not going to be very um, accepting of improvement. And number two, they're, <laughs> They're fudging the numbers and some of them will do it on purpose and some of it will be doing it because they don't understand the impact of their choices. So it's that I look there first, their booking rate to see is this real data. I also listen to them on the phone. I, uh, 
they don't behave differently in front of me because they don't think that's why I'm there. And I'll hear them and I'll, I'll, when they get off the phone, I'll say, okay, did you hear what you just said? And then they kind of wait a minute and I'll repeat it back to them and they don't even realize what they said. So one of my favorite examples is they call a company that does heating, cooling, plumbing. And they say, I'm looking for an electrician. And they say, the CSR says, we don't do electrical. I said, you've just lost them. Never ever say what you can't or won't do. You say, we do heating, cooling, and plumbing. If you have a need for those services, we'd love to be your service provider. For electrical, we recommend XYZ. Or if you don't have anybody you recommend, you say, for electrical, I would ask your friends and neighbors who they use and check Google reviews. I never once told them I don't or can't do electrical. Interesting. So it's getting them to change the words they use every day so it's habit for them at work. I talked about this a bit with Angie Snow about like words mm -hmm. that have positive and negative connotation. And the thing that really stuck with that interview I did with her was that we have the tendency to be on the phone when, we, when we're making someone wait, we say, bear with me and how you're asking your customer to carry a burden. Why would you <laughs> do that? And I'm like, holy cow, that's so accurate. Are there any type of, you know, words that usually need to be adjusted in a CR, CSR's toolkit? Well, the can't, won't, don't, why, why is parental? Every time you ask anybody why, they get defensive. Yep. Why would you do that? But if I said, help me understand the issue you have, or, you know, just get why out of your vocabulary. I really try not to use it. So I think that they just need to be really aware of the words they use. And if they get in the habits all the time, then it's always habit on the phone. Got it. My final question for you on CSRs, and we may go back to this because this is so fascinating to me, <laughs> um, is are there any behaviors that you can't train out of, right? So you gave that example before about a, a friend of yours who she said to you, you know, you told me not to hire this for this reason <laughs> and we still hired her and she did it anyway. Like, is there anything that's kind of untrainable or is there any like core values that need to be present in order to make a CSR. You get what I'm trying to I'm Yeah. Well, one that I find really kills a culture is passive aggressiveness. Mm. And you know, especially when you get a group of women together cuz traditionally CSRs tend to be women. So women can be really catty and vicious to each other. And if you have passive aggressive ones, it's worst. I sat at one shop and literally one of them took another one outside to talk about the other one sitting inside. Oof. I mean, it's just so passive aggressive. And so I really watch for that. I don't, in the company I ran, that was really a killer for our culture. And I find it a very common killer for cultures. So I watched that one. I can't train that out of them. They have to choose to no longer be passive aggressive. They have to, now if they want to learn to be aware and want help with it, I'll help them. But when they get ready to type off that, you know, little crappy email or text, or they need to take a step back and go, okay, wait a minute. Should I really be having a conversation? Yeah. Um, so I, that's one behavior. I, I just have, felt you can't train out of them unless they're really all in for self-improvement and self-assessment. I really look for people that 
are very people, 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 very process and procedure oriented. So they follow those directions. I just really look for that they're not, I don't want passive aggressive. I don't want high individualistic in that role. That's not to say if you're high individualistic, it's a bad thing. It's just that in, you know, again, I said in my culture, what is that behavior for us? I would imagine you wouldn't want a high individualistic person in a CSR role because I imagine that being a CSR and being in that, you know, community of usually women who are working the phones, you probably have to support one another too. So you kind of yes. need more of that, like, um, I forgot what letter it is on the disc, but more of that team mentality, more of that, like, I, yeah. I, yeah. So that really makes sense. I checked on your website before we talked today about all the different business development theories you have. And I thought um, they were all really fun <laughs> and I loved all their names. Talk to me about the hit by a truck theory because I love it so much. And um, what are the basics of this exercise and what should folks listening think about for their business? Well, it, it's funny. I just talked to the company I was on site last week with about this because I've always said it, you know, if you get hit by a truck at lunch, somebody has to sit down and do your job. And everybody says, yeah, we have process and procedures, but are they really, could somebody literally go to your desk, pull them out and do your job? And in fact, my assistant that works for me now, Aaron, that literally happened to them. Their controller had a heart attack on Christmas Eve years ago, gone. Like <sighs> nobody knew how to do her job. So it's year end, payroll, holidays, like which it's a terrible, tragic thing. And I don't want to try to make it sound like it's not. However, work goes on, companies go on. And so when people, they say, well, I'm going to make processes and procedures, but they don't know how. And so when I do my little hit by a truck theory breakout session, we learn how to make process and procedures in a very a systemized way. So we get the ones done first that are most critical, like payroll or, you know, paying taxes or, you know, those things that like, that's a critical thing if people don't get their paycheck. And when I left being general manager, I had to teach the owner how to do payroll. And I sat down with my checklist and my process procedure and I sat him in my seat and I said, okay, do it. I didn't teach him. I made him do it from my procedure so that when I wasn't there, he had a reference. And all the companies I work with, when I'm on site, I want them to drive and then they get that process and procedure from me. And, and so it's really, that's my hit by a truck theory. You, you have to be prepared for the worst. Yeah. And I, and I love also thinking about it in the, in the most critical sense, right? So what's like the top priority for that your business needs to run, right? It's people need to get paid. People, you need to pay your taxes or else that's going to be a giant punch to your business. And then just kind of working the way back from there and figuring out what are the highest priority things that must get taken care of if, you know, forbid the worst thing happens. That's well, I, really smart. I see people out there, they'll say, oh, do the easy ones first. Well, okay, but what if you haven't gotten them all done yet and something terrible happens and all you have is the easy ones, like push this button on the phone to answer it. Well, you can figure that out. If you didn't have that in writing, somebody would figure out what button to push. But you know, the, how to book a call in your software or how to have a tech, I mean, even if a tech doesn't know how to do the mobile, he can write it on a piece of paper, you know? So 
but we got to get them the data. So look, I looked at each position and what are those critical, most critical to least critical and what they do. Got it. I also love taking the system, the process you put down on paper and instead of showing someone how to do it, sitting there with them, having them reference your document and make sure they know how to do it. Because I think sometimes you show people how to do something. They're like, they, uh uh-huh you to death. And then two weeks later, when they actually do it, they're calling you and saying like, wait, I don't understand. How does this work? Or you write a procedure and you miss something because you always do it. Hmm. And so when I teach how to create a procedure, there's different steps. And one of them is have somebody test it. That's not you. Is there a particular school of thought you have on systems and procedures? Because I know those are huge in the trades. Like it's all about, especially if you want to grow and scale, having written down systems and procedures is so important. Have you kind of just developed your own school of thinking or is there someone that you really learn from in terms of creating these? Honestly, I did it by trial and error. When I was GM, my girls had, we called it the Bible and it was probably, I don't know, six inches thick. And I literally took everything we did and made screenshots step. Here's where you do point here, click here, screenshots, what you put in that field, everything, because consistency breeds accuracy and everybody has to do the same thing for your data to be consistent. And if we're all doing it differently, then something's lost in the shuffle, either numbers are lost or data, you know, information about the customer, something's lost. And so really it was by me doing that. And then creating, I have a process on how to create processes that now I teach. So it it was really just out of necessity that I started doing it. And then being in the role I'm in now, figured out a way to teach it. I love that. That's really, really cool. So we've talked about culture a bit, quite a bit throughout this conversation (laughs) and about building the best team. So what do you think, given the labor shortage that's happening that everyone knows about, what do you think is the best way that contractors should go about solving this hiring crisis with culture? Well, if you have a great culture, people will want to be there. The the biggest failure I think we make as contractors is we're afraid to lose them. And so what ends up is, and, and I say this every shop I go in. So technicians, for example, they're divas. And I can say that because I'm married to a technician who's now a service manager. There's just level of divaness, right? From like a installer to a comfort consultant. That's the, then there's ranges between there. And the tech that bought the company is like, I'm not a diva. And I said, oh, you were the biggest diva of all. You were a comfort advisor. And then like, it wasn't three days later, he goes, oh yeah, it's a diva. (laughs) (laughs) But, and I I don't mean that mean, I mean it in that if, if we allow them to let that be to the point where they're indispensable, then pretty soon we let them get by with this. And then the other guy gets by because we let that guy and we start setting precedences that we had no intention to have. And then pretty soon we sit there and think we can't get rid of them. And the reality is they're, they may be a cancer in our company culture. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of 10, when somebody has let that person go, your revenue doesn't really take a hit because everybody else steps up. Everybody's so happy that they're not there anymore, but we're so afraid of losing people that we start allowing poor culture. And I think you really have to decide 
what would you rather have? Would you rather have a really great culture? And I used to tell my staff, I'd say, you know, we all have to go to work to pay bills. Well, the average person, I don't want you to get out of bed in the morning and go, oh God, I got to go to work. Like it's a terrible thing. So if you've got to come to work, I want you to go, oh, you know, I got to go to work. It's not bad. You know, if I'm going to be anywhere, at least it's somewhere like that. So I think that's the biggest thing. With this hiring shortage, make sure you decide what is that non-negotiable, what level is acceptable and what's not. And stick to your guns. We, we tend to waver. The other thing that happens is I see owners override what service managers, you know, you've decided as a leadership team, here's our acceptable things, here's our non-negotiables. And then when somebody doesn't follow that and the service manager or another manager holds them accountable and then an owner comes in and goes, oh no, we can't lose him. It's okay. I'll just, you know, let it go this time. You're setting a precedence and you have to decide, is that okay? Um, and you're also undercutting your service manager too, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Terrible. That's really interesting. And it's come up on this podcast before kind of getting rid of the cancer in cultures that can create, especially when we're in this situation where the, the trained technicians, the, you know, the ones that aren't apprentices or aren't, you know, green off the street, they recognize they're in high demand and some of them are taking advantage of it. And um, a lot of them are. Well, have- and like I was in, I was in a car at lunch with an owner one time and he got a phone call and the, it was a client, a customer. And they said, Hey, they said they can't get over to my apartment building until three o'clock or whatever. And he goes, I got water coming through the ceiling. The owner says, I'll have one, someone there at one. And he hangs up, he calls the CSR and he says, you get somebody over there. And I said, here's what you just did. You said to your customer, Hey, don't call my office. They don't know what they're doing. Just call me. Yep. And he kind of paused. He's like, oh, I did. I said, what you should have done is said, let me check. And the office will get back to you. Called them and said, you need to make this happen. And here's why. Now call him back right now and tell him you got it accomplished. Because then the office is a hero. And that customer won't keep calling the owner all the time. And also now the office, you know, has been trusted to fix this issue. The yes. owner has given them like, I know that you can handle this. Please handle it. Yes. So, and that's a similar culture thing. It's, that's a culture to say, okay, my team can do this. Now, maybe whoever he talked to at the time didn't realize the se- severity. That's a teachable moment. What kind of questions are you asking? instead of just overriding what they said. And I think we tend to do that with text too. So I didn't send you this question ahead of time, but I, <laughs> I, I really want to ask you about it. So I hear that there's some, there's usually some friction between CSRs and technicians. <laughs> um, what are some ways that, you know, what are some common problems you see and how do you try to solve them when you work for cl- your clients? So technicians will walk all over a CSR, some on purpose, some not even realizing they do it. And most CSRs don't even realize it's happening. A good dispatcher is wired differently and will know that. That's why when you grow to the point, they're two different people. That's one of the things you look for. So I'll, I'll watch a, a technician come in and talk to the CSR and they'll leave and I'll go, he just totally played you. 
like what? And I'll say the conversation back to them and they're like, oh, he did. CSRs aren't wired to be mean. So like if I was walking down the hall and I hear CSRs on the phone to technicians because a phone call from a technician to a CSR starts out, hey, what's going on? Oh, what, what kind of call does Jim have? It's such a waste of time. I don't want to not be friendly. I want a friendly culture, but I'll go over and hang up their phone. Our job is to answer the phone for our customers, but they'll, they'll do things like that to find out the schedule or find out who's got the quote unquote good calls. And so I really try to help everybody understand what a waste of time that is. And I give my CSRs permission to not answer them. Hmm. But you have to, you have to teach them because they want to help. Interesting. So you have to give them permission. So more you see technicians getting a little nosy about what's happening so they can kind of measure themselves up against other technicians and that kind of stuff. And CSRs want to be helpful. So they are like, oh yeah, of course, here's what the schedule yes. looks like today. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'll try and give you an install job or something like that. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I've asked, all the time. I've asked this question a couple of times. It'll be fun to listen back and see what everyone thinks about this. Um, <laughs> We've been chatting for quite a while already. I would be, it would be foolish of me to talk to you and not talk about QuickBooks or payroll. <laughs> talk to me about, you know, some of the ways that you help clients with QuickBooks. You know, there's some people, what's, or there's so much we could talk about. So just whittle it down to maybe one piece of advice that you would give to folks that are leveraging QuickBooks and um, just any help you could give them in terms of ac accounting for their business. So two pieces of advice is batching, posting, exporting. One is my expectation is 24 hours. The one thing I tell them is Service Titan doesn't care if you batch, you create 500 batches a day and call it mashed potatoes. It doesn't care. It's batching is to say, I've looked at this, I agree with it. Posting is to say, nobody can touch this. And exporting says, I'm going to hit financials. And 48 hours max, because I go into companies, see they'll have pages and pages and pages. The other mistake, I feel it's a mistake. And this again is an opinion more than anything. They'll have accounting batch. But if you're really great at accounting, you weren't in the middle of all those phone calls and booking the call and the tech conversation. I want you to be really great at accounting. Mm. not really great at customer service. So if you have your accounting batching, they end up having to ask questions all the time of the CSRs and techs because they don't know. Have your CSR dispatcher, somebody batch them to mm -hmm. say you agree, let accounting export them. And that's probably my biggest advice because a lot, now there's been very few companies that their accountants are the ones that do the debriefing and stuff but that's rare. Most of them, your CSRs and dispatchers are doing that. And then they have accounting batching and accounting didn't do the debrief and they don't know the verbiage and language very well, especially if they're new. And I don't want to teach a new accountant that I want to teach them to be really great at financials. So that's probably my biggest piece of advice is look at your process and are the people doing it that really should be doing it. Got and, it. And be consistent. Don't financials within five days of the end of the 
by business days at the end of the month. That's non-negotiable. Got it. So having your CSRs, your dispatchers, like batch the invoices for QuickBooks, if you are using Service Titan and QuickBooks, and then having the the accountant actually export that out to QuickBooks. So you kind of have dual levels of confirming like, yes, this is what happened. The accountant making sure everything's looking good and then pushing that off into QuickBooks. Yes. Got it. Pretty simple, I think. I think- And QuickBooks in general, whether you use Service Titan or not, I advocate you reconcile every day. So then your financials are accurate all the time instead of for one hour at the end of the month. And a lot of people don't realize you can reconcile a checkbook every day. You don't have to wait till the end of the month. That's actually really good too. It's kind of one of those things where it's like, you can do it for 20 minutes once every day, or you can spend a whole day at the end of the month doing it. What would you rather do? Yeah. And it literally takes three minutes every morning because you're only doing transactions from yesterday. That's it. Good tips from Kathy Nielsen. Um, (laughs) I have a couple more questions for you, but I, you know, you've given me just so much information. You should see my notebook. It's just scrawled with all these things. Um, I just want you to talk about your most memorable experience with a client. You know, it's funny when you said that to me, I'm sitting here going, wow, what is my most memorable For me, I am such a relationship person. Like it is all about relationships for me. And I have made some really amazing friends in this industry. And, you know, my husband being in the industry, I drag him along when I can. And it's been really fun. So I don't know if there's one that really giant stands out, but it's, I've gotten a lot of really great cheerleaders out there for me. And I don't know if there's one really amazing experience. I w- I'll tell you a funny one. Oh, please. Um, it's not, it wasn't really necessarily related to work, but I went on site with this company and after work one night, it was in Louisiana and I love live music. And um, so they took me to their little neighborhood place that had a live band that night. So we had a beer and me being me, I, I don't like holding on to cold water bottles or cold beers or anything. So I have my koozie. So I was going back for another onsite a month later and I flew my husband down on Thursday night so we could hang out with them over the weekend. They live on a river and we went boating and stuff. And they said, yeah, you know, we met your wife and thought she was amazing. And then she pulled out a koozie and it was love. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, that on your per- wallet, keys, phone, koozie. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's how much you hate um, holding cold things, which I totally relate to, by the way. Um, All right. Is there anything we should have talked about that we didn't? You know, you and I always go down such rabbit holes and it's always fun for me. So um, there's there's always things to talk about. I I think we hit the big highlights, but. I'm so, I I totally, Kathy, I am so excited to take that assessment. Um, I, I'm like, I've got all these ideas. I have a couple of rapid fire questions for you. If you're ready for them. All right. Okay. First, how do you take your coffee? Black. If you could have dinner with one person dead or alive, who would it be? That's always hard because instantly emotionally you say your parents. Sure. Hmm. Beyond that. I don't know. That'd be a tough one. I think parents I... answer. Yeah. I, you know, cause as you grow up and you realize it's like, 
like I didn't drink coffee before my mom passed away. And she'd always say, when you grow up, you'll drink coffee. And I said, mom, I'm 40 years old. I don't think I'm drinking coffee. Now I drink a pot every day. <laughs> so I think, man, if I could just have a cup of coffee with my mom, <laughs> she'd be so I, amazed. <laughs> I think that's great. I think that's a great answer. Um, what's the number one thing you're trying to learn more about right now? Probably... I honestly, I'm going back to the basics on budgeting for me. So I'm learning more, but it, where I'm at in life right now. So I'm going back to my Dave Ramsey roots, mm. but applying it to today because I found now that I have a company <laughs> out of no intention of having that I need to do that. So that's what, that's what I have a whole pile next to me that that's what I'm trying to learn more about today. Nice. Uh, speaking of budgeting, if money weren't an object, so you had unlimited resources, what's the first thing you would do? Probably put my husband and I in a position where we could work less and have more time to just go hang out in various places. Yeah. Great answer. Any podcasts or books that you recommend to the folks listening? I am a huge podcast person. My current favorite one is Armchair Experts. It is oh, Frank Shepard. Yeah, yes. that's a great one. I didn't realize the dude is brilliant. Like he graduated magna cum laude from UCLA, but he's also very dyslexic. I love that even though him and I may not relate on a political level, he doesn't push his agenda. The people he has on are very interesting. And he asks great questions. I'm all about great questions. So they, my favorite one I just listened to, I think her name was Erica Smith. And it was about the, the history of voting. Hmm, so cool. interesting. I have to get back into him. I really, I have to say, I, I, um, didn't consider Dax Shepard to be that. I was like, Oh, the guy from without a paddle. I was like, right. His podcast. <laughs> It's very good. I'm as a, as a podcaster myself, I envy his question, his uh, interview style. Finally, what's the number one thing every contractor should do to run a successful business? Hold people accountable. Agreed. What are the three non-negotiables? What are the expectations? What are the consequences and or rewards and hold them to it? I see it over and over and over. No accountability. It's a killer. Fantastic answer. Kathy, if anyone wants to find you, learn more about you, get one of your trainings, have you asked them what happens if they get hit by a truck, where should they find you? <laughs> uh, my website is www.chickenladyspeaks.com. I will link it in the show notes and on the website where this podcast will live. Kathy, as always, it was a fantastic time chatting with you today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I always have a great time talking to you too. Thanks for having me. Are you looking to build a top tier service company? Service Titans Contractor Playbook is a handy guide to help you get where you want to go. Authored by the industry's greatest minds, this free all-in-one playbook will help you set your company up for success. Learn how to provide excellent customer service, establish your company's culture, market to new and existing customers, and more. Just go to servicetitan.com slash get playbook to access the free digital guide. That's servicetitan.com slash get playbook. 